Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Northern Ireland is a very specific place to police, not just because there's still a security threat, you know, from distant Republicans, we still have active loyalist paramilitaries, but it's also policing here can get very political. It was that political aspect of it that ended Simon Byrne's career quite quite abruptly. Some of them struggle to get to grips with that in a timely fashion and make, you know, gaffes immediately. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. New PSNI Chief Constable John Boucher is an old school detective who cut his teeth with the feared flying squad at the Met Police, who was refused the top job in Northern Ireland at a previous interview and whose Canova report is a highly anticipated document expected to give a no-holds-barred account of the handling of the notorious steak knife. Fresh into the position after the resignation of the hapless Simon Byrne, Boucher is largely liked by the public, by the media and by members of the force. But what will he have to do to drag the PSNI into the modern world of equality, multi-ethnicity and accountability? Does he have what it takes to atone for the sins of the past and to face a brighter future? Today, I'm talking to Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris about Boucher, about the hopes for his new role and about the task he has ahead. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. John Boucher appears to be the, well, he was the popular candidate, was he, for, for taking over this role. Seems to be well liked across all divides. I mean, I'm talking journalists, police <laughs> and citizens as my my divides. But um, yeah, he seems to be a guy that's very well respected, has had a very clean career. And uh, it, there's a lot of hopes for the Canova report he's been working on. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a very, you know, seasoned police officer. He has a, a, a very long and prestigious career in several different police forces. Um, and he's someone that would obviously have been already known to us because he was the head of Operation Canova, which just to, to remind people, Operation Canova is the investigation into collusion with the 
um, informer who we knew as Steak Knife, who is Freddie Scapatishi, who recently died. Um, he was asked to investigate the murders carried out by him. Freddie Scapatishi was the head of the IRA's internal security, or the nothing squad, as they were called, who was sent to investigate um, informers or what went wrong in IRA operations if they were compromised. And it turns out the entire time he was the highest ranking agent within the, the, the IRA and had been working for the um, military intelligence for many, many years. Um, and so Canova was headed up by John Boucher, who we've all interviewed in that role. So had all got to know pretty well before he um, he applied for the PSNIG constable job. So who ordered that Canova report or how did that come about? That came about because some of the families had made... Um, and asked for fresh investigations into their loved one's murder. And at the time, the who would have been the head of the director, the director of public prosecutions at the time, Byron McGrory, had um, passed that on to the PSNI. The PSNI's then Chief Constable George Hamilton had said, look, you know, we can't investigate this because, it, you know, it'd be the police investigating the police sort of thing. So instead, we're going to call in um, an outside person to investigate it um, and John Boucher then was appointed to head of Canova and that was about five years ago so that report is finished but um, I suppose one of the hurdles in John Boucher becoming Chief Constable and by the way John Boucher applied to be the Chief Constable of the PSNI in 2019 and he was interviewed for that post but was unsuccessful. Simon Byrne instead took the job and Simon Byrne's career as Chief Constable came to a crashing end and let's not say he didn't he didn't leave in the best of circumstances um, and in fact has not been seen or heard of since. Um, so, you know, I suppose for, for Boucher reapplying for that job after not getting in 2019, it's sort of a vindication of him. You know, the, the policing board basically had to call on him to come, you know, like a the night on the white horse to try and save them from the absolute shambles that the PSNI was in. So, you know, if you applied for a job to get it five years ago and then five years later they came begging you to come back and help them try and fix things, um, you would uh you would feel like you'd been been vindicated in the, in the first place, wouldn't you, for not getting it's not getting the job originally. But you know, and maybe I'm wrong, but he, would he have been like he must have got a really good overview of all that has gone on in the north and what he's facing into and the problems because of that five year investigation in Canova and, you know, what he's been looking at, because some of the stuff that has been alleged and it's clearly that the or you see handlers of Freddie Scapatici were told certain murders were going to happen and basically did nothing about it. Now, that's, a, you know, a very simple version of what he's been looking at. But he's really pulled back the layers of things that went on, uh, very uncomfortable things that went on in Northern Ireland during a particular period. Something that we all want to move on from, but you can't move on without recognising that that happened. Yeah, and the, the thing about... Um about Canova is that John Boucher told us at the time in his previous role that he had access to intelligence files that no one had seen before. His clearance was at the top, you know, at the highest ranking security clearance you could have. Some of those documents were able to be disclosed to the Canova team. Some of them were so top secret that only John Boucher himself was allowed into a room to read those documents um, and wasn't even allowed to remove them. Um, but, you know, it was of the highest ranking intelligence possible. His report 
should be released sometime, if not this month, next month. I mean, it's it's ready. It's it's currently with the PSNI. We will get on to that about how that has caused some difficulties. But, um, you know, I'm dying to read. I'm fascinated to read this report, not just because I hope it gives those families, some of whom I got to know quite well, I hope it gives them some some degree of, of truth and um, about what actually happened to their loved ones and, and in some cases vindication. Because remember, a lot of these families won't speak publicly because they still carry around the shame. You know, almost everyone that Freddie Scapatichi killed was from a Republican community in North and West Belfast. He was investigating other IRA men, if you like. So, um, and then these funerals of, of these Republicans that were accused of being informers, the worst thing that you could have been accused of being and, and back in, you know, during that conflict, you know, their funerals were often tiny, attended only by, you know, very close family and friends. They would have happened, you know, early in the morning just to avoid crowds and people seeing what was happening. It was almost like the shame was carried with them. And in many cases, they either weren't informers or they were very, very low level informers. I suppose what we had now, you and I grew to call them 10 pound touch, you know, people who would have had very limited information to be passing on anyway. Some of them were more high ranking informers, but also a lot of them were sacrificed to save Freddie's competition himself. So when people got suspicious, you know, that there was... Um, that there was an informer higher up within the ranks, his handlers would have said to him, well, X, Y, and Z is working for us. You know, why don't you leak that out? Mm. Um, you know, so some people were deemed expendable, if you like. You know, they were they were done. Their use was over um, to save Freddie Skeptic's skin. And also, I'm, I'm curious to know as to when that work ended. So the IRA claimed that after 1990, there was a, an event of which Sandy Lynch, who was another police informer, had been... Captured by the IRN, he'd been interrogated by Freddie Skeptici. Freddie Skeptici left the bit, left the house where he was being held. Danny Morrison, who was then the director of publicity for Sinn Féin, showed up. Danny Morrison said he was showing up to arrange a press conference because Sandy Lynch had basically said that his handlers had asked him to set up two very senior Republicans. They said they were going to get him to say all this on camera. Um, but as he arrived at the house, so too did the RUC and they were all arrested and jailed. They ended up having those convictions quashed. Now, they claim that after that, that entire unit were stood down and that no, nobody was operation again after that, including Freddie Scapatichi. That would sort of tie in what, what Freddie Scapatichi told the Cook Report. Do you remember the Cook Report? This is like I really, do. we'll show our age. We'll all have to show our age. Now, the Cook Report, obviously, was one of those sort of like undercover you know, um, sort of a crime investigation programs many years ago. He told uh, journalists from the Cook Report as well that he hadn't been with the IRA in about three years, and that was in about 93. But there are other people whose loved ones were killed after that who are convinced that um, Steak Knife or Freddie Skeptici played a part in a loved one's murder. So Canova should be able to shed some light on that. You know, when did Freddie Skeptici stop being an IRA enforcer? Mm. You know, so mm -hmm. that's that's one of the things I'm, I'm interested in. And for Boucher, it's it's a window into Scapatici. It's a window into, um, you know, the murders that the families really want proper answers for and they want to know was their collusion. But it's a window into the force he's taking over because, you know, some of the legacy of that RUC must be still lingering there in that PSNI are certainly the skeletons have have come some of the way forward with, with the PSNI as they try to kind of leave them behind. So he's getting a real look into what once was a poison chalice. Maybe it's not seen as that anymore, the PSNI, but he knows what he's handling. He knows what he's dealing with now. And presumably if he got to see all those top secret uh, files, he knows all the dirt on everybody that might be beneath him. 
Um, yes, well, there's the fact that he does know the inner workings and what happened in that time. That obviously, I, I would say that gives him an advantage as a chief constable because we have had English chief constables in the past with varying degrees of success. Some of the things that they struggle with initially is trying to get to grips. Northern Ireland is a very specific policing, um, a specific place to police, not just because there's still a security threat, you know, from distant Republicans, we still have active loyalist paramilitaries, but it's also policing here can get very political. It was that political aspect of it that ended Simon Byrne's career quite quite abruptly. Um, and some of them struggle to get to grips with that in a timely fashion and make, you know, gaffes immediately. I mean, for instance, Simon Byrne was only in the post a couple of weeks and he was given a, a he was at a talk, I think it was at Queen's University, and he said about, we'll do everything we can to get the distant Republicans if we need to take their children off, and we will. Oh. I mean, threatening to take children off people because of the sense of, well, you can imagine that that caused. John Boucher's not going to make any of those kind of gaffes because he knows this place yeah. really well. He knows the politics of it. He knows how it operates. He knows the sensitivities around policing and he knows that security landscape very well. He's also, I suppose to say, he's not a career policeman as such. He's a proper cop. Do you know yeah. what I mean? He's a, he a detective. He's always worked in crime or counter-terrorism. He was a member of that, you know, famous London flying squad that was, you know, chasing after the armed robbers, the train robbers and all that sort of thing. You know, he's a proper policeman. So that should help them with the rank and file and trying to get them on board. Um, but as well as that, he already knows this place. And and it doesn't harm that he also has relationships with the media because he has done, he was very open with the media mm -hmm. in Operation Canova. He did do um, a number of interviews, but also he would have been someone who would have been quite accessible to the media. You know, you didn't have to go through 10 press officers to get to him. Yes. Um, so we already know him and that I think will help them as well. It doesn't do any harm. The, the, the problem with a lot of, I suppose, the previous chief constables is, and I keep going back to Simon Byrne, I don't want to be unfair to him, but he hated, he was uncomfortable in front of the media. You could see he was uncomfortable. He was awkward and his mannerisms were awkward and he just didn't like doing it. You could sense that often. So he didn't do it very often. He hated those sort of one-to-one -one type interviews. And he also, what I noticed about Simon Byrne is he spoke, he used very police speak, if you know what I mean. He used that language of, you know, the, the police academy sort of training language Whereas John Boucher is a very straight-talking guy, he just speaks, you know, uh, the, you know, he can communicate with the, the sort of man or woman on the street type thing rather than speak like a policeman. And I have to say what you're describing there is like how we might describe some of the members of the criminal fraternity that they can almost smell the fear. Like we media yeah. can smell that fear <laughs> of people, can't we? And it's not yeah. it's not good because <laughs> you just, you know, it doesn't make for good relations at all. Somebody who's confident, who is confident of themselves dealing with you, it, it's, it's, look, the media is a hungry animal and if it's fed, it, is, it remains somewhat satisfied, um, you know, and that's a very good PR advice maybe for people yeah. out there and that's just if they're defensive with you you're defensive with them exactly. and all of a sudden the relationship becomes quite fractured you know and, and that's it and that's you know so not looking for the man's address but has he been living in the north of ireland is he actually living in a community in yeah. northern ireland or has he been has he been over and back to the uk so he would have just came back and forward and then previously as Operation Canova, he, there wouldn't have been any threat to him so i'm assuming he could have quite easily stayed in hotels you know in and around that's very different now. The, the chief constable, he now has um, 
personal protection officers who will be with him constantly. He, I asked him that question because obviously the criticism of, of English chief constables in the past and the PSNI was 22 years old last week. It celebrated its 22nd birthday, if you like. So that transfer from the RUC to the PSNI and, you know, I remember it so well. I was working as a journalist at the time. I remember, you know, working on the the Sunday for the Monday's paper and the Sunday night at midnight, all the, you know, the signs came down off the police stations. They changed them to pick from RUC to PSNI. So in those 22 years, we have had, you know, Ronnie Flanagan was the chief constable when that first happened. He was changed from the RUC to the PSNI. Um, we got Hjord then, who was English, but understood this place very, very well. Um, we've had, you know, temporary chief constables such as Judith Gillespie and Colin Cramphorn. Again, he was English. Judith Gillespie was from Northern Ireland. Um, we had Matt Baggett, who was disastrous. You know, he was... Matt Baggett, I think he was the head of the sort of Christian Police Officers Association or something. Oh, he, he liked to see the good in people, even when there was none. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was his downfall. He he was came here as, you know, the peacetime chief constable. He was going to put, you know, officers on horseback and up down the Falls Road. No, it was all nonsense. And then the flag, the loyalist flag protest started and he just floundered after that. It, was, it wasn't good. So um, after that, we had George Hamilton, who was XRUC. Um, he did a you know a, a fairly good job in, in his time in the job, and then we went to um, Simon Byrne, who was let's say gaff prone was probably being kind. Him, he was constantly saying things that just you know caused other public outrage. One of the things that he did, yeah, I was going to ask you to actually go through his top five. Uh, well, well, threatening people to take their children off them if he thought they were involved in, you know, in distant republicanism was one of, was, was you know, practically day one. He was here for about a week and a half or something at the time. Um, that year, on Christmas Day, he went across McGlenn Police Station, which is still, it's now being knocked down. It's been, um, it's going to be demolished, but it was still like a big sort of fortified base from that time of, you know, when you could only get helicoptered in and out across McGlenn, the security forces, the army and the police, they couldn't walk the streets across McGlenn back during the Troubles. So that police station's got a relic almost of the past. He visited there on Christmas Day and for some reason to got a picture taken of himself, stand beside these boys, carrying guns that you could have went hunting elephants, you know, in the freaking, with these big massive guns. Somebody actually messaged me at the time and said there's like night vision sights on those and it's broad daylight. Like what they were just the guns were made to made as look as you know was as sort of angry as possible, as big as possible. And he stopped beside these boys and it was like Merry Christmas from Cross McGlenn type thing. And the people of South Armagh went ballistic, absolutely ballistic. And they went, this is not our community. What on earth are you doing? Um, and as a result of that, there had to be the Cross McGlenn, you know, review of policing in the entire area, which then recommended that police station be knocked down. Um, you know, it was what he did then, I suppose, it finished him off, if you like, was there was an incident where during the COVID restrictions, there was a commemoration into a loyalist attack and Sean Graham bookmakers. The, the families had had it outside because, and they actually put on Facebook, said to people not to come to it. It was only for families. They were laying flowers and as they arrived, two police officers arrived. The police officers were both two rookies. They were both, you know, less than a year in the job. They said that they didn't know what was going on. They just radioed through and said, look, there's a whole lot of people here. It looks like a breach of COVID. Um, and then they approached them and it turned really nasty really quickly. You can see the videos of that online. And they arrested and led away in handcuffs Mark Sykes, who was one of the people who had survived that attack. He was shot multiple times. The optics of that, as you can imagine, were atrocious. Um, Simon Byrne then 
discipline those officers without waiting on an investigation. The police federation challenged that, and then a high court judge said that it was unfair. It was actually illegal. He shouldn't have, and that he bowed to pressure from Sinn Féin to discipline these officers without actually waiting on the full investigation. He had managed to sort of ride out that until there was an emergency meeting of the policing board. He walked out of that meeting. We're all standing outside. He comes out absolutely furious. He says, I'll not be resigning. And also, I can't talk about that ruling because we're now thinking about appealing it. Well, you know, that was it. The Police Federation went mental um, and he didn't survive less than, I think it was a couple of 24 hours, maybe 48 hours after that. And he didn't even show up to resign himself. The, the chair of the policing board had to read out his resignation letter. I have not seen or heard of him since. I don't know where he is. I'm assuming he's um, he's went somewhere, but there's very limited uh, well, access to, to Wi-Fi or, or telephone, so people can't deny him, but he hasn't spoke since. So that was the end of him. We were then left with no chief constable, but also the, the deputy chief constable, Mark Hamilton, is off on the sick. He had some sort of operation and has came back again. So there was no deputy chief constable either. There was basically nobody in charge. That went on for quite a few weeks. And then the, the policing board um, appointed an interim chief constable, who was John Boucher. Um, and that required the sign off of the NIO because as well as having no head of police, we also have no government. Because our government I was, was I was just going to point that out. There was nobody in charge. <laughs> nobody of is the in charge. Or the government. Um Simon yeah. Byrne, like he was actually a nice man when you spoke to him. I don't know whether nice is, you know, the good enough to cut it in, in the PSNI. He was this, you know, he suppose he had a, a strange character. You know, you wouldn't have said, oh, you could be mates with him, you know. Listen, like if you're like myself, this is how I judge people. Could you go for a drink with that person? <laughs> yes or no? And he was a no. You know? okay, so that was, yeah. It would have been a no. If I had to sit in the room and have a pint for Simon Byrne, it would have been the most boring drink of my life. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some people at life who think, well, you know, they're probably good crack outside of their official role and he wasn't one of them. Um, he started, he tried, you know, to change a lot of things. He didn't have the money to change it. Then he started sort of cutting from the bottom. They called it sort of taking the low hanging fruit, get away rid of community officers and stuff. It was just all quite disastrous near the end. He's left the PSNI is in a, a complete crisis, the crisis of the, the massive data breach. You yes, know, we're 10,000. Yeah, of course. I was going to say to you, like, I mean, of the, the kind of his top five gaffes, that wasn't one of them. But that was, I almost imagine seeing intelligence files flapping in the breeze down a roadway yeah. but that's literally well, within days you know within days what happened was there was a massive data breach and that someone asked an FOI request about you know how many people are detectives sergeants whatever and for some reason the entire Excel sheet that showed the names of every single police officer and, and civilian member of staff, what station they worked in. Um, and probably more important for my line of work is it also showed what budget they were paid for out of, you know, the main budget was obviously just the main PSNI budget. Some were paid out of, you know, special, um, say the NIO wanted on a pilot scheme to give money towards PSNI, they would be paid out of that. And some were paid out of the security budget and that's MI5's budget. And we were able to work out which police officers were working for intelligence or not. Um, just by looking through that um, data breach, which we were then all told to immediately delete. Um, so everybody, I mean, within within days, you know, there was criminals saying to me, have you seen that? There was, you know, distant Republicans asking me, had I seen it? There was loyalists who had seen it. Everybody had had um, side of it. He was managing slowly, I think, to, to try and write his way out of that. But then a, a, a senior police officer was sent around to take... Um, they have a name for it, which has left me right now, but it's a form that they had to go and speak to people who felt as a result of that, mm -hmm. that they were somehow under a greater threat. 
um, and why they felt they were under greater threat. You know, and it might be because my kid plays GA for such and such team, and I take him there on a Saturday, or you know, I'm constantly at such and such football ground, which is in a, a nationalist area, or my mum lives. So, um, and some of those documents were set on top of a police car, and the police officer drove away, and they fluttered all over the road. It was lucky it was the weekend of there was a storm that weekend, and I think most turned to paper mache within within um, an hour, but it was lucky that the bad weather did because I don't think they could be recovered. There was police officers running around on the hard shoulder of the M- M2 trying to pick them up, but um, they were long gone by then. Just catastrophic. Yeah. Now, Boucher, and I was recently interviewing the uh, author Ricky O'Raw. I think his book is just simply called Freddy Scapatici from memory. Yeah. But, um, and at the time, so it was about maybe a month ago or six weeks ago, he was saying that this report was due, this Boucher report, the Canova report yeah. was due. Do you think they delayed it because of this announcement? Did they th- do you think they wanted him in place as the chief constable before it's released? Yeah, I mean, the what, what John Boucher has said when he took the interim role, and again, what he said the other day when he was appointed as chief constable is, I have finished anyway. That report is done. It's dusted. Whether I'm chief constable or not chief constable, I would have had no more dealings with that report. It is done. It went for what they call national security clearance. So it went basically to the spooks and they have looked through it. They have cleared it for release. It then went to the um, public prosecution service who went to look at it, see if there was anything that could compromise a future prosecution. They okayed it for release and then it was sent to the police. Um, what John Boucher has said is that he has recused himself from any more dealings but that it'll have to be published by the police and then the police will have to say what the response to it's going to be he's handed that off to a guy called Chris Todd who is currently the interim Deputy Chief Constable because remember as I already said the Deputy Chief Constable's off on the 6th so we have a temporary Deputy Chief Constable he's going to be dealing with that now what you would think is would the families be angry and say why is this man now working for the PSNI when he was you know investigating this report Boucher has has managed something that I don't think many people could have and that he's managed to keep those families all on board he grew a very close relationship with them they all have his phone number you know they can all ring him up at any time he talks to them constantly he said during his press conference when he was appointed as, as the permanent chief constable that that morning the three of those families had rang him up to congratulate him say good luck on your first day the priority of plan for the job that some of them were saying, you know, we'll fill in the application form for you. He will lobby the policing board and they wanted him to take it on or he wouldn't have done it. And he remained good friends with those families going forward. But I suppose it's perception, isn't it? Perception is he's now working for the organisation that he was investigating. So how is that going to work? The issue, I suppose, with the Canova report is it's unlikely to result in any prosecutions. Freddie Scapatish is dead. And also we have legacy legislation that puts an end to all investigations anyway. That's currently being challenged in the High Court. The result of that we'll know because those challenges are going to be heard quite quickly. Um, we'll know very soon. So but possibly by mid, maybe spring next year, that legislation will come in to place permanently and there won't be any invest any more prosecutions anyway. But it's more a truth recovery document. And I think it's a good template to see can something like Canova, could that work? in terms of trying to solve our legacy and trying to bring closure to people and trying to get the truth out there. Um, you know, it's I expect it to be a fascinating document because he has released parts of his investigation as he went along. If you look on the website, he places, you know, this is what we found so far, this is where we are so far. Mm-hmm. And even that was made for interest in reading, you know, it's very detailed. These, you know, so he says families are all on board with him. They're all happy enough that he's doing that job. I haven't heard anything different. There's nobody has said you know, we're unhappy that he is doing that job. 
or you know we think that there's a perceived conflict of interest it's certainly the optics of it might have looked like that so that's why he keeps on addressing it and saying you know I will not take anything more to do with the PSNI part I'm recusing myself from that somebody else will deal with that um, so we should get the publication of it I expect very soon um, he's probably glad that I don't have to take anything more to do with it because he's enough to be getting on with. Mm-hmm. Currently, the state of the PSNI is, you know, it's in a bit of a shambles. So there's an awful lot of work to be done. You know, he has a heavy, heavy entry to look after as it is. Before we talk a bit about that, he does sound to be a good communicator one way or another. And perhaps yeah. the relationship with the families would tell you maybe he's an honourable man. But um, I was sort of relating there earlier to some of the secrets he knows about the RUC that may have transferred into the PSNI. And so would there be anybody left that was involved in the policing of any of that or anything around that that might still be in the PSNI or would they have all retired and gone? Most of them retired. There was a big patent payoff, a big redundancy payoff. They all got, you know, vast payoffs and, and, and fairly lucrative pensions. They're mainly gone. I think that his biggest problem will not be anything to do with the Canova stuff. It'll more to be to do with when he's, he's a reformer. That's what he does. He goes from police forces that are in crisis and he, he, he reforms and changes things. He's going to have to do some serious reform of the PSNI. Um, and he'll meet resistance there because there are people who are just, first of all, they're setting their ways. Uh, they're, you know, they've maybe got quite a cushy number going as it is. They don't want the change. They don't want reform. And he'll probably find himself butting heads as he goes along. And when that happens, as you know, people then start briefing against you when you're doing something that nobody likes, you know, and then start trying to then twist twist things around. So, um, you know, I did ask him about that when I was speaking to him the other day in an interview, and I mean, he's quite aware that that could happen, you know, and that has happened in previous police forces where he's been in and tried to make changes and he knows that, but he seems to take bits if, you know, well, we're going to do this and we're going to move along and if you don't like it, mm-hmm. there's a door, off you go. And what are the kind of problems, you know, apart from we've spoken before about um, Catholic PSNI officers yeah. that maybe the threats they face within their own community and that sort of ongoing effort to make it more inclusive. But um, I noticed that story about Emma Bond. Is there a little bit of kind of sexism, bit of that? There's a real misogyny problem going on there. And, you know, when the data breach happened, all of a sudden we had all these police officers queuing up to talk to you. It's usually the hate from the media and all of a sudden, you know, they were like on speed dial. And a lot of them were complaining about that there was, you know, casual sectarianism and, and misogyny. Emma Bond was one of the most senior females in the, the PSNI. She was in charge of the Derry Straban area, the first police officer, female police officer ever to take on that role. She she left. She's now an assistant chief constable with Police Scotland. And you've only to look at the Police Scotland's executive team, and I think there's something like three or four members of the PSNI, former members of the PSNI in it, to show that they've got a, an issue there with women seem to get to a certain level, and then they go, they leave. So the most senior police officer would have been Barbara Gray. She's currently um, a deputy commissioner with the Metropolitan Police. As I said, Emma Bonds in Police Scotland. Um, John Boucher said he phoned Emma Bond he doesn't know her but in his first morning of the job he phoned her to say that there would be learning from that ruling she won that um, that unfair employment she took a, a fair employment tribunal against the PSNI she accused him of sexism and misogyny it was upheld on every count I think she got something like £30,000 of a payout but the, the report itself the actual ruling is about 90 odd pages long and you can even see him skimming through it you know levels of misogyny you know in terms of that sort of like when, when car did she get that job type thing you know it was a lot of 
of of that going on. Um, I asked him about that, and I'll tell you how. I mean, when it comes to misogyny or senior um, female police officers, John Boucher's married to one of the most senior inspectors in the Metropolitan Police. Nice. Um, a, a lady called Heidi Boucher, and uh, who is a very successful police woman in her own right. So I don't think that he'd have much truck with people, you know, um, not to help into or promote or encourage female police officers because I don't think he'd get away with that in his own house. Um, so he had said he had phoned her and he actually was very open about the fact that there's a there's a serious problem there. He had said that out of 19, uh, there's 19, I think it's like chief superintendents, um, and he was told that three were women. And when he looked at it, there was only one woman who's currently um, acting up as assistant chief constable. Another one's seconded to, to Downing Street. She's overworking in London. Another one's off in long-term sex. So there's technically only one um, person of, of chief superintendent above within the, the um, in that f- female group of 19 officers. So uh, that group of 19 male officers, there is only one who's a, who's a woman. So they have a real issue when it comes to keeping women who seem to think... And he actually said, look, there was a job recently, a promotion recently, and five women applied for it and didn't get an interview. And I'm going to go back and check. It might be a very valid reason, but I'm going back to check why and see why they didn't. So I would say you'll see a change maybe there. Yeah, um, You know, I, I think that when a man has a strong, successful woman in their life, you know, it does make maybe a difference in their perception about how the few things, you know, you would think probably looking at John Boucher is that sort of old school cop that, you know, might have that sort of casual, you know, misogyny in it. But, you know, once you hear about his personal circumstances, you realize there's none of that going on. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a real issue. Not just Catholic police officers, but as I said, female police officers, people from minority groups, you know, I look through those 10,000 names and if you're looking for names that don't sound traditionally Irish or Northern Irish, you could have counted them on, you know, on your on one hand. You know, the the fact is they've got a real issue there attracting mm-hmm. people. You know, we have such a, a thriving um now migrant population and yet we're not seeing those people joining the PSNI. So it has a you know an issue attracting there and changing changing that. So it's, it's you know it's ultimately to drag us forward yeah. into the into the current, you know, World, it sounds yeah. like it sounds like a very old fashioned organisation. It's probably been yeah. bog, bogged down by a lot of what's gone on and by that big dramatic, what was pitched as a big dramatic change from the RUC to the PSNI, the more inclusive. You know, change happens very slowly in institutions, yeah. doesn't it? So um there was and pattern was never fully realized. The pattern report's an amazing, you know, piece of a piece of work and it's you know, it's held up as a gold standard of policing reform around the world, but it was never fully realized or never fully implemented because there was people within the RUC still there at the time were completely resistant to it. Um and you know, and that that type of I suppose sexism or misogyny that came from of the the old fashioned, I suppose, policing. <clears throat> Some of that, it might be, you know, I suppose I'm actually like in a, a, a bizarre way, I'm going to quote the Barbie movie where they say, oh, no, the patriarchy still exists. We just hate it better now. Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. better. Hidden now. Yeah, yeah. Um, that That's the case. It's just better. They're better, better hiding what's going on. But yeah, there's still a, there's still a real issue there. You can see that. I mean, Paula Hillman, who was one of the women who would have been tipped to be a future assistant or deputy chief constable is currently with the guards. You know, she took herself off down south, as did quite a few of her colleagues. Um, you know, so we're seeing like that drain as well, where people go to go to other forces, be it the Met, Police Scotland, to the guards, wherever. They're not staying in the PSNI. And, you know, if you were chief constable, you'd have to say, why are we losing all this talent to other forces? What is it that makes them think that they don't have a career in the PSNI? What are they paying? 
Well, I'll tell you, the pay is probably quite similar, but the problem, is, the issue is obviously there's a threat to police officers here. They still get up and look under the car every morning. I'm assuming you go to Police Scotland, you live a much freer life. You go down to the garage, you live a much freer life. You're able to go out for a drink with your mates, take your family out for dinner at the weekend. You know, you're not worried that you can't only go to this area or go to that area. You have to look under your car. I'm sure there's obviously still a threat to those people working in crime ops or investigating those big drug gangs, but they don't have that sort of ongoing distant mm-hmm. threat. You know, that might be like a specific investigation that threat rather than just a blanket threat to all officers. So there's probably, it's probably feels much freer mm-hmm. um, working for another another force. But at the same time too, if you came from here and you joined the police and you, you lived here, you would join them for a very specific reason, you know, you're joining them probably because you wanted to do that job. And the fact that people like Emma Bond, not just left, but left feeling very aggrieved to the point where she took a, a fair employment case, you know, that's not not good either. Mm-hmm. And what sort of pay is it? I'll ask you that question again, Miss Morris. The chief constable's pay is... <laughs> The chief constable's job, 220,000 plus all the, the extras uh, and bonuses that like go poli- along with you're that. You're like a politician there. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I think it's 230. It might be. It is a very well, chief yeah. constable's job is a very well-paid job. Yeah. But the, the lower down, yeah. it isn't. It's quite it's quite low-paid initially when they first go in. Um, and to take on a job like that that isn't, doesn't have great pay but comes with a great deal of risk, um, you know, yeah. it, wouldn't be, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't attract me or it wouldn't no. be something I'd be like, I'm a children today. Wouldn't like to face into what Boucher has to to drag it further forward. And But maybe he's the right man for the job and hopefully. Uh, we'll find it. We'll find it soon enough. You know, yeah. he did say, when, you know, when we said yeah, congratulations, he says, well, you know, come back in six months and ask for congratulations. Does he still think that then? But he seems very committed to it. He does say he's going to live live in Northern Ireland and he's looking to buy somewhere here. And he has spoken to his, as I said, police officer wife about that and they've discussed it. Um, there used to be a house that belonged to the, the policing board where the chief constables, if they didn't live here, that they lived in this house, heavily sort of fortified armed house. Um, and it was sold when George Hamilton became PSNI chief constable because he'd been a deputy chief constable and he'd just stayed in his own house, which was already, you know, bulletproof windowed anyway. Um, and so that house was sold. So Simon Byrne, while he had many faults, he saved the police, police and budget a fortune because when he came here, he came here for many days a week. His family stayed in England. There's a, an apartment, like a flat inside Knock Headquarters. And it sounds absolutely <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> Knock Headquarters is not the, the cheeriest, happiest place. I can only imagine what it's like at night, you know, when all the staff go home, um, pl- you know, clattered around there on your own. Um, and he stayed in the, the flat in Knockhead for his entire time that he was here. He never bought anywhere to live. He never had, you know, a house to go home to. He had this and apparently it's, a, it's you know, it's not the, the fanciest of places. So um, John Boucher said he is. He does intend to, to buy somewhere here. He's not intending on selling his house in England, but he is intending to buy somewhere here. And he doesn't, he was got quite upset when I said, you know, English sheet constables have accused of being part-timers. Um, and they said, you know, my career, no one's ever called me a part-timer. You know, if I commit to something, I commit to it fully. So, you know, we'll see because the, the thing, I suppose the thing first off is he has to win back over the, the rank and file officers who are completely disillusioned, but also the public, you know, public confidence in policing is not great at the minute. The Belfast Telegraph did a poll and I think it was something like 16% only said they had full confidence in the PSNI. So he has to tackle that as well. So, 
you know, um, as I said, we'll, we'll go back in six months and see how he's, mark his homework and see how he's doing then. But Hopefully the Canova report will be the first step to that because there is an awful lot of that in the ether talk about yeah. collusion and, and all the rest of it. And I suppose you mentioned 22 years the PSNI is in existence now. So really that old school or you see should really be flushed out now or certainly there'd be very few Most left. Most of them, yeah. When I first started journalism, the place and the RUC press office was actually staffed by police officers. Um, I was actually talking about this to someone yesterday because me, you know, from West Belfast, starting, you know, week freaking one or whatever it was, journalism, I remember phoning up the um, RUC press office about there was searches going on in a, in a there was a house something, you know, close to, it was Twinbrook that was, and I phoned up the press office and I said, look, you're raiding the house in Twinbrook. Can I get a statement from you? And this RUC woman said, we don't raid houses, we search them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it looks like a raid to me. But anyway, <laughs> so there, the, all of those roles were civilianized under the PSNI. You know, all those desk roles were all civilianized. Um, and they, they were trying to get as many you know, police officers to do police and work and taking them out of roles. It could easily be be done by, you know, administration staff and civil servants. So all of that has has changed. Yeah. Sometimes the better and sometimes not. You know, um, you know, I, I sometimes think back to the nostalgia of an RUC, a big RUC woman. I always used to imagine them sitting in their uniform, you know, quite quite angry every time the media phoned them up, answering the phone. But yeah, it, that has changed. Do they speak your language now? Like they'd know what a raid is. <laughs> well, it was just that she was, she was, yeah, she was very upset at me trying to, to claim that the RUC were somehow putting people's doors up the hall and raiding their houses. Um, but yeah, you mean a lot of them would be people in the past. You've had like former journalists go and work in the PSNI press office, and now they're just you know um, civil servants or people who came from other government press offices and things like that. You know, it's 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 a much more efficient, I think, process. Mm. Um, and you know, while we have our problems, and we always do with press offices, no matter whether who who runs them, um, you know, in in the main, at least if they're civilians, you can you know you know who you're dealing with and you get to know the name and you get to know the person. But yeah, it was very different when I first started journalism. It was uh, probably much more colourful than it is now. Well, we look back and we think that, we think <laughs> that but you know. So listen, it's, it's Friday. It's been a busy week. It's, uh, it's probably wine time soon, is it? Well, I have two things to do. And then after that, I think it's definitely wine time, Nicola. Yeah. Oh, I do. <laughs> I seriously do. I think this weekend is going to be messy. I can just... <laughs> Well, you know that it. I have to I have to avoid you in all social settings because it, that's that's basically messy. It's probably the best way to describe it. No, no, we'll be much more business like from here on in. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Our editors up. <laughs> right. Well, listen. We'll talk next week and. Um, we'll see what we have to discuss then. I imagine the Canova report shortly, but maybe not up the, that, yeah. that immediate. No, maybe not by next week, but yeah, there's plenty of other things happening happening next week in the world of crime and security. So I will get a chat with you about that next next Friday. So from Dublin over and out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, let's get the white on chill. Right. Bye. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from Sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.
Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.